Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a message from our current series, Practicing the Way, the Sabbath Practice. To watch any of our previous messages or find all listening platforms, we encourage you to visit www.valleybrook.cc forward slash on demand. Enjoy. Well, good morning, everybody. We're in our fourth week of this series called Practicing the Way. We've been focusing on Sabbath, and we're going to look at the last part of the Sabbath practice, which I think has been encouraging us and challenging during the season. Now, today's topic is worship, and who better to speak on worship than our worship director, Pat Fitzgerald. So give him a warm welcome. Well, good morning, church. I don't know about you, but I needed to to hear that God's love never runs out on me this morning. Um, That was also my dad leading worship. I don't think I ever expected something like this to happen. Uh, My dad leading worship for me to preach. So uh, that's a blessing. It's it's amazing. So... My son, Teddy, you may have heard him during the worship. Um, he's turning two in January, and his favorite movie franchise right now is Disney's Cars. Um, I only discovered this year that it's a franchise. I thought it was just one movie, but yeah, there's, there's a two and a three, um, both of which I highly recommend. If you haven't seen them, Cars 2 is probably our family's favorite. Um, that was what me and my son watched last night before bed. Uh, What most parents prepare you for and all seemingly dread is how kids want to watch the same movie over and over. Uh, But honestly, I might love Cars as much or more than my son at this point. (laughs) Uh, Pretty much every time he asks for the movie, I snuggle up with him, put it on, and we both quote every line. He actually tries to quote the lines, and he's almost two. Uh, So just a quick recap of the movie to set this whole thing up. Um, The first one. Lightning McQueen is an up-and-coming superstar in the racing industry. We enter the story of Cars 1 right before the last race of his rookie season. He and two other cars are clearly the best race cars in that circuit, and they're tied for first place, and the winner receives a Piston Cup. He decided that he has to hurry to the racing site as fast as possible to meet with his prospective sponsors. Unfortunately, he gets stranded in the middle of nowhere on his way there in a town called Radiator Springs. He accidentally ruined their main road and was given community service to fix it. Much of the movie takes place while, the, while he works to repair the road, and in between it, he can't help but get to know the cars that occupy that city. One of these cars in particular catches his eye, a Porsche named Sally. <laughs> After most of the road is completed, Sally invites him to take a drive with her. Don't you big city race cars ever just take a drive? She asks. Uh, No, no we don't, he says. So here we see him finally choose to take it slow after the slow life was forced upon him. He takes a drive with Sally and he encounters beauty all around him that he never noticed before. After the drive, Lightning says to Sally, hey listen, thanks for the drive. It's kind of nice to slow down every once in a while. So what I saw in that story is someone who finally stops after a lifetime of busyness and hurry. And when he stops, he finds rest. And when he and when he rests, he sees beauty all around him. You could say Lightning McQueen took a Sabbath. 
So we might live in the busiest culture in human history. If we wanted to, we could fill every single second of every single day with to-do list items. It'd even be possible to fill our time with these items, these to-do list items that would never involve interacting with a person face-to-face. As technology develops, we find that our jobs, our social interactions, our shopping can all be done from a device that we keep in our pocket. We can get so much done while only having to move two thumbs. Did you know that the average American touches their phone 2,617 times a day? And as of February, a report found that the average American watches over three hours of TV per day. That's almost 22 hours in a week. And as of this June, a report found that the average American spends two and a half hours per day on social media. That's almost 18 hours a week. And as of 2013, the most recent poll found that Americans are getting around 6.8 hours of sleep per day, but I believe that's gone down. Um, But it's around 48 hours per week. And lastly, a study from Stanford University stated that more than half of Americans work 50 hours or more per week. So if we do some time budgeting, there's 24 hours in a day, which means there's 168 hours in a week. Based on those numbers, the average American is spending almost 40 hours a week on TV and social media, around 50 hours on work, and sleeping around 50, maybe less. By my calculations, that's 140 hours spent and that didn't account for any work around the house, socializing, or hobbies. Here's another alarming stat. According to an article from Time Magazine in 2015, the average person's attention span is now eight seconds. I'll say that again for anyone who's lapsed. The average attention span is now eight seconds, and that's a second shorter than a goldfish. And the goldfish was always the butt of the joke for having a short attention span. So a study in Time Magazine found this. This one shocked me, no pun intended. For 15 minutes, the team left participants alone in a lab room in which they could push a button to shock themselves if they wanted to leave. The results were startling, even though all participants had previously stated they would pay money to avoid being shocked with electricity. 67% of men and 25% of the women chose to inflict it on themselves rather than just sit there quietly and think. So what's going on here? How did we get here? Uh, It seems like we traded our mental well-being for efficiency. Efficiency that was supposed to give us more time to enjoy our life. In 1967, a Senate subcommittee predicted that by 1985, the average American would work 22 hours a week for 27 weeks of the year because of all the time that we freed up. The reality is, though, leisure time has been on the decline since the 80s. Author and pastor Tyler Staten wrote a summary of the evolution of human efficiency, starting with the clock. Interestingly enough, I don't know if you know this, I did not. The clock, as we know it, was created by Christian monks as a way to organize their group prayers in the 900s AD. The first public clock was set up in 1370 in Germany, and this was the beginning of the world deciding to switch from natural time to artificial time. Before this, you were awake when the sun was up and asleep when it was down. That meant you slept longer in the winter and shorter in the summer. Next up was the light bulb. In 1879, we no longer needed natural light or any oil or wood for a fire. This allowed us to be productive for as long as we wanted, even to ignore what was happening in the world by keeping things visible to suit our needs. Prior to the light bulb, the average American slept for 10 hours a night. Now that number is closer to six. 
in all modern wisdom still says to get at least seven, preferably eight or more. Next up was the iPhone. In 2007, we put infinity into our pockets. The internet in general is a huge piece of this, but having it mobily available and to travel with us really changed the game. As the comedian Bo Burnham put it, could I interest you in a little bit of everything all of the time? I could do a lot of my work, my grocery shopping, food ordering, socializing, music listening, music writing, podcast listening, game playing, all from the thing in my front left pocket. So we learned before that more than half of Americans work 50 or more hours a week, but that same study I pointed to actually claims that uh, there's a sharp decline in your productivity if you work 50, or hour, 50 hours or more in a week, and 55 or more hours, your productivity falls off a cliff. So not only is it wise for employees to take time off, it's wise for employers to, to let them. Uh, I don't know if you've heard the term hurry sickness for those in our life groups you probably have, but it was coined in the book Type A Behavior and Your Heart, and this was released in 1974. This book was written to help type A personalities or just high capacity and driven workers understand the need for boundaries. Here are some of the symptoms of hurry sickness according to healthline.com. Number one, speeding, both in your car and through conversations, the grocery store or meals. Two, rushing through work tasks and household chores, but get this to the point where you sometimes make mistakes and have to do them again. Three, frequently performing time calculations in your head to see whether you can fit in another task. Number four, feeling irritable when you face delays. Number five, constantly trying to find ways to save time. And number six, endlessly running through your to-do list in your head to make sure you haven't forgotten anything. Now, I don't know about you, but that just sounds like normal life. For me and almost anyone I've encountered. <laughs> But this is why we think taking Sabbath seriously is one of the best things we as Christians can do in this moment. Imagine what a, a community of well-rested, happy, and loving people can do in this area. Hurry and joy are incompatible. So Sabbath is a great way to slow down and rest, allowing love and joy to naturally flow out of you. So we've been talking over the last three weeks, as Clark said, about Sabbath. And as you saw on that little video, uh, if you missed any of the sermons, I encourage you to check them out. They're on our YouTube channel. They're on our podcast channel, either on Apple or uh, Spotify. We've also been using material from an organization called Practicing the Way in our life groups that meet during the week. So if you missed any of those, I recommend you check them out. Their website is practicingtheway.org. Uh, they make all of their content free. They've been an amazing resource for us as a church. They're incredibly responsive anytime we have questions. Um, and for me personally, I've, been, I've just been loving everything that they have to offer. So um, they separated the four movements of Sabbath into stop, rest, delight, and worship. So let's talk about worship. What is worship? Is it just what we did to open the service? Or is it something more? Author and social commentator David Foster Wallace made the case that everyone worships something or someone and that we do it every day of our lives. He was not a Christian. He said this, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. 
There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel like you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. If you worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, on the verge of being found out. And so on. Look, the insidious things about these forms of worship is that they're not evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day. So what else are we worshiping? The human experience is now and has always been a struggle with idolatry, which is putting something or someone higher than we put God. Tish Harrison Warren wrote an amazing book called Liturgy of the Ordinary. Uh, My wife calls it the peanut butter and jelly book because there's a picture of peanut butter and jelly on the front. Um, But in it, she describes an ordinary day of her life through the lens of a liturgy of worship. Now, if you don't know what the word liturgy means, it's described or defined as a rite or body of rites prescribed for public worship. So like an order of service, like we do here. Um, We sing songs, we listen to a sermon, and then we go out and we fellowship uh, in the cafe. So Warren says that in her book, says in her book that the crucible of our formation is in the anonymous monotony of our daily routines. Are we just moving from thing to thing, person to person, without noticing God in our presence? Being stuck in traffic can be frustrating, or it can be holy ground and a place that we meet with God. Brushing your teeth in the morning can be tedious, or it can be a place that you listen for God's voice in the first moments of your day. Author James K.A. Smith makes the suggestion that we take a liturgical audit of our day to look at how we're spending our time through the lens of a liturgy of worship. He makes the case that the things we do also do something to us. So once you identify the liturgies in your life, you can then start to assess how they're forming you for better or for worse. For example, is watching an hour or more of news every day making you into a person that's more loving? Or is scrolling social media giving you the peace that surpasses understanding? Sabbath can be what we call a keystone habit, something that starts turning over like dominoes all the other habits in your life. Taking the Sabbath seriously has radically shifted my perspective. I've become more intentional with how I spend my time, and I really notice when it's being wasted. Imagine 24 hours where we can just lay it all down, all of our efforts, our desires, our pride, and just be in the presence of God where there is no stronger feeling of love that exists in this world. That author, Tyler Staten, suggested that the angels described in Revelation are covered with eyes all over their body because there is no greater joy that exists anywhere in the universe than just simply beholding God. Giving ourselves over to beholding God is the joy that we seek. 
It's what we're trying to feel with everything that we do. It's what we were made to seek. We just sometimes choose to settle for something less. So let's talk about some ways we can prioritize worship in our daily lives. I've broken it down into three parts. Firstly, we worship with our minds. Theology is defined as the study of God, and it's our way of growing in our knowledge of him. One way we show our love to people is by learning about them. My wife has always been very good at this, especially when it comes to gift giving. When we first started dating, I learned that she made a note in her phone uh, of all the things I mentioned in passing that I wanted but didn't have. She also locked that note so I couldn't spy on it. Um, She was learning about me, and it made me feel loved when I received those gifts. I think we should apply that same dedication to knowing and loving God. Now, it's really important that theology be something that's between us and God. Theology should never be a way of gaining ammunition for winning arguments or debates. We all need to fight that urge within us. Theology is the very slow process of learning who God is through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. As we grow in our knowledge of God, we start to learn about our place in his kingdom, empowering us to show love to his world. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. As we learn who God is, we learn what it means to love and to love well. What we put into our minds comes out. Uh, For example, as you probably all saw, everything relates back to cars right now for me, because I've watched it so many times. That's what happens when we expose our minds to something. So we're called to renew our minds repeatedly. Scripture reading is the best way to do this, and if possible, trying to understand Scripture through the eyes and the audience that it was written to. There's a lot that's changed in 2,000 years, but there are also distinct cultural differences around the world even now. For example, give us this day our daily bread could mean something very different to me than it does to someone in, say, a third world country. For me, it could mean reducing my food intake so that I have just what I need and to give me a spirit of thankfulness for that. For them, it could literally mean, can I have food today? That, that's a radical change in perspective. If we, if we look with a different set of eyes, we might see some things that we never saw before. Another way to remove our, uh, renew our minds is through stories. We were made to tell and to hear stories, and we're the only creatures in the world that do so. They're a way to shake us into new perspectives, to try on the shoes and eyes of another person. We have only to look at the numbers I shared earlier. The average American dedicates 40 hours a week to the stories of other people through TV and social media. That's why it can be a great thing to seek out storytellers who can improve our understanding of the gospel. So secondly, we worship with our bodies. I like to consider our posture in a worship service to be body language. My wife has taught me a good deal about body language over the years, like crossing your arms as a sign of defensiveness. Um, She likes to gently point out when I'm crossing my arms by saying something like, what's the matter with you? Our body language communicates something to someone, but it also communicates something to ourselves. Me crossing my arms can then communicate to me that I'm defensive, making me more defensive. 
Um, I try to keep that in mind when I take part in a worship service in public, but also when I'm at home in prayer. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. The context of this passage is so important to us. The Holy Spirit no longer needs to be housed in a tabernacle or a temple, only allowed to be in the presence of by those who are most pure. He lives in those that follow him. When Jesus walked the earth, he encountered intense legalism with no heart postured towards God. But I think today, a lot of the American church might have the opposite problem. When we try to love without clear boundaries, we find ourselves drifting from the heart of God. We must find a balance between reverence for a holy God and the love and joy found in God as our father and friends. So just as an example, sorry, we're not supposed to kill on the Sabbath. That's a rule. That was a big one though. If I were to hold a guitar backwards and just hit the backside, Dad, I'm going to grab your guitar. This is not how it was intended to be used. I'm not going to make the sounds it was intended to make. We have to first learn how to hold it, how to play it, We have to tune our body to it. Um, You actually build calluses the more that you play, which helps you press the strings more easily. Um, We actually have to tune our bodies and our minds to know the rules of this instrument in order to be able to play it. I hope I put it back the way that you want it. Um, So it's important to also keep practicing when you're learning guitar. Because without practice, the necessary muscles, calluses, joints required to play guitar, they'll begin to atrophy. Um, So you have to keep doing it. Um, Similarly, if the guitar is not touched for a long time, I don't know if you know this, but um, the strings will actually start to go out of tune because the instrument actually moves because it's wood. Um, And depending on the conditions that are around, it could be humid, it could be warm or cold, it actually moves. So... You have to constantly pick it up, tune it, in order for it to be in tune. Same thing with us. We have to constantly tune ourselves, tune our hearts um, into worshiping God. So, like, what if we looked at worshiping God this way? Um, In this worship service, things like singing, um, raising our hands in worship, um, or even kneeling in prayer actually bring us to a a place of greater communion with God because they bring our minds and our bodies into the equation. It's easy to slip into a mode of analysis during worship if we're just engaging our minds. What we do with our bodies matters. So last point, we worship with community. As the theologian N.T. Wright likes to say, Christianity is a team sport. We can't follow Jesus alone. We need each other for encouragement and accountability. Romans 12, 3 through 8 says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, 
and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, and the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Imagine if worship this morning was led by five drummers. I know there are some people in here that would love that. I might be one of them. But most people would probably be very confused. Music is such a great example of the, necess- of the necessity of community. Everyone offering a different sound, a different perspective, all coming together to create one thing. You can create music alone, but playing music in and of itself is a deeply communal thing. An orchestra, dozens of people playing different instruments in different parts, all coming together to make one sound. Likewise, we can come together in this church, in our life groups, to build each other up in love, to reflect the love of God in the world in our daily lives. In the book of Acts, we see the beginning of the Christian church where community was the foundation. Acts 2, 42 through 47 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They gave themselves over completely to community. Now, that might look a lot different today because it's a different world today, but there are some themes that we learn from the community of the original church. Um, They were radically generous. They ate together often. And we have a chance to eat together on the last Sunday of every month. Um, They prayed together and they confessed to each other and loved each other through their struggles. The mark of a mature Christian is not perfect morality. It's love. Can we trust each other to carry our burdens with us? Looking at our Sunday services, it actually breaks down quite nicely into these three categories. We engage our bodies in worship, our minds on the sermon, and community in the cafe after. This is how we worship, and that same concept can be carried into our daily lives. As I close, the band can come on up. I want to share some practical ways to worship in the Sabbath. Um, And I'm going to put them on the screen. Number one, feast. This one's pretty hard, but uh, yeah, eat, feast, enjoy it. Enjoy food. Ancient Jewish tradition welcomes the Sabbath with a feast with family and friends. Enjoy the meal, bless each other, and if possible, save the cleanup for after or clean up while you cook. Number two, spend some time in silence and solitude. I know this is difficult, especially today, considering what I shared earlier, but try to spend time with God without an agenda. Tell him what you love about the world he made, what you're thankful for that he's given you, and try asking if there's anything he's doing around you that you can help with. Number three, read large sections of scripture. The Bible 
in its totality is the best love story ever written. Honestly, most love stories that we hear copy it. Um, sacrificial love. One of the best ways to see and feel that love is to read an entire book or at least a large section in one sitting. Like try Mark, for example. Number four, be together. Spend time with one another. Set boundaries on your conversation. Try gratitude, not wanting. Focus on what you have, not on what you need or that you want. Um, B, don't plan. Bless each other, don't criticize. Number five, be in nature. Stroll with God, don't power walk. Marvel at the beauty he made and thank him for it. Number six, bless each other. Um, the act of blessing someone is the act of calling out something beautiful about their character and their deepest self. You can only do this if you know people. My son, he's only one years old, one year old, however you say it, makes people feel loved. He always does. We see it at school. Um, every time we say we're Teddy's parents, they all do the same thing. Oh. Uh, <laughs> He just makes people feel loved. And we got to observe him the other day. We watched through like a one-sided mirror and he was just going up to all his teachers, giving them a little hug. And you'd see like this beaming smile show up on their face. Um, I got to tell him, I get to tell him this on Sabbath. I bless him by telling him this. And it brings me joy as pure as Rocky Mountain air. It, we were made to do that. We were made to observe the beauty in others, not just worry about the beauty in ourselves. Um, it actually brings us more joy to notice the beauty in someone else than to notice our own. Find, so I encourage you, find something beautiful in the character of someone else and tell them. Uh, lastly, number seven, music. For those who can play, pull out an instrument and play um, or put on some music and try dancing. I'm terrible at dancing, but man, it's fun to dance terribly with my wife and son. Um, I do want to make sure to emphasize this. It's, we're not talking about legalism. This is not a restriction. This is a gift. The gift to do this um, is something that you can receive or not. The Sabbath is a gift from God. It was given to humanity, something he commanded for our well-being, not as something to keep us contained. Um, biblical commands are like a fence around a playground. If I brought my one-year-old son to a playground without a fence and it was next to a busy street, would we feel very free? No, the fence would allow us to enjoy the playground without worrying my son will wander into the street. Biblical law is an act of love, not bondage. Uh, but I just want to drive home the need to avoid legalism in this story from Luke chapter 14. It says, One Sabbath, when he went in to eat at the house of one of the leading Pharisees, they were watching him closely. There in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid. In response, Jesus asked the law experts and the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. He took the man, healed him, and sent him away. And to them, he said, which of you whose son or ox falls into a well will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? <laughs> I love that. They could find no answer to these things. So remember, the goal is not to be great at Sabbath. It's to be like Jesus. Jesus modeled what it looks like to be fully human. But that being said, Sabbath is a sanctuary in time in which we can delight 
in and worship our creator. Every week, we imagine Eden as it was when God walked freely with mankind. And we look forward to our future when he will again. Every week, we practice eternity with God. So before I move into prayer, uh, if anything that I talked about today stirred up anything in you and you want to talk, um, or if you don't follow Jesus right now and you would like to, I'd love to talk to you. I'll be out in the cafe. Um, feel free to come up and talk to me, ask questions, or um, answer questions, whatever. <laughs> um, just come talk to me. I'm sure Clark would say the same. Um, but now let's move into uh, a closing song. Let's bow our heads and let's be present for God. Dear Heavenly Father, we just, um, we want to hear your voice this morning. We want to come alongside you. We want to move with you in our lives, not just here on Sundays, but in our lives. Um, Lord, I pray that you just uh, give us the strength to accept your invitation to walk with you. Uh, I pray that you just make each of us collectively and individually a beacon of love, a beacon of light in this, in this area. Um, Lord, we know that it's not the big things that we as a church do that point people to you. It's, it's the things that everyone in these seats do that point people to you. Lord, I just pray that you give everyone in this room courage, strength, most importantly, love overflowing so that they can then pour out on other people. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.